our rights because we believe we're being treated unjustly, as someone might say. Or another word that is common is equality. Our, our people in our culture are clamoring for equality. There's, a, there's an assumption, there's a, there's a belief that people are not being treated equally, and therefore it's wrong. We have to do something about this. There must be equality for all. Those are just different ways of saying justice. And, and that actual term is being used even more, racial justice for instance, and social justice, as I mentioned. Well, for anyone who wants justice, you're in good company because God himself delights in justice, as we will see. And the the scripture that I want to look at this morning to see how much God delights in justice is Jeremiah chapter 9. Now, this chapter begins with a pretty somber tone. Here's how Jeremiah begins chapter 9. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night. If you know anything about the prophet Jeremiah, he is often called the weeping prophet. And here's one of the reasons why. He says, I wish I could contain more water in my head or that my eyes could be like a fountain that is just gushing out more tears. Why, Jeremiah, why? For, he says, the slain of the daughter of my people. Think about that imagery. My people, the Jewish people, he says, are going to be slaughtered. It's coming. And I wish I could cry more tears for them. Then he says, oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them. So he's weeping for them, but he also wants to get away from them. Why? For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous Men. Now, he doesn't mean they're all actual adulterers in, the, in terms of infidelity to their wives. This is a frequent statement by God of the spiritual adultery of his people. They have turned aside to other gods, and they are committing treachery against God. But that is shown not only in their idolatry, but also in how they treat one another. Look at verse 3. They bend their tongue... Like their bow, lies and not truth prevail in the land. Again, graphic imagery. He's like a, a, someone who's got a bow and arrow, and he's pulled that bow back. The string is taut, and he's ready to release that bow. He's always armed to shoot the, bow, to shoot the arrow, not the bow. Shoots the arrow with the bow. He's got the bow bent with the string pulled back and the arrow is in and he's ready to shoot at his prey. Well, what is the arrow? Lying tongues. What Jeremiah is saying is, I'm surrounded by people who are always prepared, cocked and loaded, ready to fire off lie after lie after lie after lie. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. This is his statement, ultimately. 
They don't know me, but they are working from one evil thing to another. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor and do not trust any brother because every brother deals craftily and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Do you see all of these different sins that, that God is talking about are coming from the mouth? What they say has evil intent and it's lying and deceit. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. Think about that imagery. If you've ever taken a foreign language, most of you had to probably in high school. I took Spanish, several years of it in high school and college. And, and what you're doing as you study this language is you are teaching your tongue to speak that language so that you can interact with someone, so that you can communicate this other language. Well, God here is saying that these people are teaching their tongue to speak lies. Have you ever seen that before? Are we so duped by our culture duped by the lie that man and woman, that we're basically good? I mean, when you evaluate the world around you, people you work with, neighbors, people on TV, people on social media, how clear is it in your mind that it could be that there are people who are intentional about lying and deceiving you? And that sounds harsh to even assume that of someone. And yet the scripture would say this is the default setting of human beings. This is who we are unless the spirit of God transforms us. We have a natural inclination to these things. We see it all over the place. Especially in the media, social media, people talking, just firing out things that are not true, and they don't care. We must not grow immune to those things. And we should always be on guard against our own speech and words, because that is not pleasing to the Lord, that we lie, that we deceive, that we speak falsehoods. He says, they weary themselves committing iniquity. Did you do anything that, that wore you out this week? Lift weights, you know, you get done with an hour workout and you're just exhausted. Maybe you run a 5K. Some of you train for marathons. I don't understand that. Work out in the garden, whatever. Just You, you come in and you're, you're just exhausted and you've you got to take a nap for a while. You weary yourself. God says these people weary themselves committing iniquity. They are doing it so much they are worn out with their lies and deceit, falsehoods. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them and assay them. For what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. With his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly he sets, sets an ambush for him. Did you catch that? They're saying, no, no, I, I, I'm going to bless you. I care about you. You can trust what I'm saying. I'm trustworthy. I'm sincere. 
But what's going on behind the words? I want to destroy you. I want to manipulate you. I want to bring harm to you. There are people and lots of them in our world who will say to you, peace, blessing, it's all good, trust me. And inside, they're seeking your downfall and your pain. It's part of human nature. And this is among God's own people, the Jewish people. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? Of course, those are rhetorical questions. Of course I shall and I must. I cannot watch a nation filled with lying and deceit. I can't allow that to go on forever. In this case, it's especially wicked because they knew better. They had the law of God. He goes on and explains what he's going to do, and it's, it's bad, it's coming, the judgment that's coming on the nation of Israel soon is bad, and, and here's what he says in verse 17, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come, and send for the wailing women that they may come. Call the professional weepers and mourners, because there is going to be good reason for them to mourn and to weep. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are put to great shame for we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Now hear the word of the Lord, O you women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a dirge. For death has come upon, come up through our windows. It has entered our palaces to cut off the children from the streets, the young men from the town squares. Speak, thus says the Lord, the corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field and like the sheep after the reaper, but no one will gather them. This is the song they were to sing. Ladies, how would you like to be these wailing women, and this is the song that you are called to sing over God's people. Walk through the streets, enter into the households, put it on your playlist. God's going to destroy the city and the countryside and wipe out these wicked people. Cheery tune, huh? It's in that context that God says this. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the scripture says, because he delights in justice and righteousness. He delights to do it, and he delights for people to do it. 
It's a big deal to him when people act unjustly. It is a big deal to the Lord that when people act deceitfully, when we lie. Now, we need to define our terms a little bit. There are three terms there that it says the Lord delights in. The first one is translated loving kindness. There's a pretty fierce debate among scholars as to whether or not that's the best interpretation or best translation. Uh, It could mean covenant faithfulness, which is not quite the same thing as loving kindness. Covenant faithfulness in the old covenant would mean bringing justice and righteousness upon a wicked people. That makes more sense in the context. But we're going we're to leave that word aside for now. The other two are clearer. He delights in justice and righteousness. They're almost synonyms, but they come at things a little bit from a little different perspective. The word justice is talking about the person in the position of making the judgment. The person who is the authority, the person who does the evaluating. God is the ultimate judge, of course, and he loves to judge with justice. That means he has his standard, and he evaluates everybody according to that standard. That's justice. The righteousness is a little more uh, in the neighborhood of we who are compared to that standard doing the right thing. We keep the the standard. We play by the rules, if you will. God loves both of those. He loves just evaluation, and he loves people acting rightly and righteously. Uh, For instance, if you were the umpire in a church softball game, if you want to please God as that umpire, you know the rules and you enforce the rules. And if it's a foul ball, you call it a foul ball. You don't say, "Uh, I like that team better, so that's a fair ball. That's unjust, and God doesn't like that. If you're a player on the church softball team, know the rules and play by the rules, and don't try to take advantage when someone, the umpire is not looking, and cheat. God hates that. He wants justice from the ones who do the evaluating, and he wants righteousness for those who are under the standard. Now, it's important in our day as we seek to understand the times that we make sure that we keep two words and keep their definitions clear. These words are thrown out all over the place, and they've come to mean almost the opposite of what they used to mean. And you need to evaluate the culture and evaluate what you say and what you hear others say very carefully and make sure you understand the concepts accurately. Matt, put up the slide, if you would, between equity and equality. These two words are not synonyms, even though they're often used synonymously. Equity is not talking about how much money you actually have in your house. I mean, in accounting terms and in real estate terms it is, but in this context, equity means to judge with impartiality, to judge with fairness. The umpire treats both teams the same. That's equity. Equality means to treat everyone the same way. Those are not the same thing. For example, I have three children. And let's just say they were all going to school this fall and they were all going to take math because I want them to to know something about math. And I said to my three children, if you get an A in math, I will give you $1,000. If you get a B in math, I'll give you $500. If you get a C, you get nothing. 
If you get a D, you owe me $500. And if you get an F, you owe me $1,000. Deal? And Sophie's like, yep. Gabe's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> okay? So at the end of the semester, I look at their grades. And equity says... I'm going to judge them all according to the standard. And I gave them the standard, and here's the standard. And so if one of my children got an A, I pay them 1000 bucks. If another one got a D, they pay me $500. And they don't say, oh, but I like you best, never mind. That's not equity. That's injustice. Now, if I said, you know what? One of my kids is complaining it's not fair that I'm giving $1,000 to one of them, and I decide, yes, I want to treat my children equally, and I give them all $1,000. That's not equity. It really is unfair before God. Now, I may choose to have mercy on the one of my children, the thirdborn, who doesn't get an A in math. And I might decide uh, he doesn't have to pay me back. If I do that because I decide to show mercy, that's fine. But equity demands, justice demands, that I treat them all according to the standard, the same standard. Do you see the difference? Do you see this? This is huge for observing what's going on in our culture. God treats mankind with equity. Over and over again, the scripture says this. We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and he will judge us without partiality. He will judge us according to our deeds, and he's not going to say, you know, I like this people group more than I like that people group. He's not going to say, I like pretty women more than I like not so pretty women. He's not going to say, I like 10-year-olds more than like 20. He doesn't do that. He says, you are going to stand before me and I'm going to judge you with justice, which means equity. And he does not want people to judge with equality, the way I'm defining it here, but with equity. In fact, in the old covenant law that he gave to Israel, he knows the nature of man and he spells this out. Matt, put up the uh, Exodus 23, verse, verse 1, if you would. So first of all, he says, you shall not bear a false report. This is in a court, in a court of law. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. He takes it very seriously that if you are called upon to give an account and say, I saw this, I heard this because someone is being tried, don't join with someone on the wicked side of things. You give an honest report. You give a true report. Give one with equity and don't play favorites. In the Ten Commandments, the don't, do not bear false witness, that was not talking about just generic lying. That was false witness in a court situation where somebody could be punished or could be exonerated based on your testimony. And if you lie in that setting, you're not bringing justice. You're bringing falsehood. And it has significant impact. Verse 2 says this. 
You shall not follow the masses in doing evil. Well, what do you mean by that, Moses? Nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Mob mentality is nothing new. It is not unique to our day and time. God here is saying to the people of Israel, when you judge someone who's been accused of a crime, something that you think is unjust, you must not follow the masses and the crowds. We don't determine justice by what a large group of people are upset about. God doesn't. And he told his people, I don't want you to do that either. He knows the temptation we will have to be influenced by a group. God says, don't do that. Don't do that to the people of Israel. He says, don't do that. Verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his dispute. God says to the nation of Israel, when a poor man is brought before the court, you are to judge him with equity. You do not say, we are not going to hold him to the standards of the law because he's poor. What does the law say? We have this principle in our nation called blind justice. And there, you may have seen the statues of Lady Justice as she's holding the scales with a blindfold on. And what is that to signify? Before the law, those who are making the evaluations are supposed to do so without regard for the class, the category, the identity, the circumstances, or any other descriptor of the person. The question is, what does the law say, and what has this person done? Now, you, th- you may say to me, Doug, 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 that's Old Covenant. That's not our law. And you'd be right, and I would applaud. You've been taught well. You have good pastors and teachers. But this doesn't change in the new covenant. In fact, in Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesies about the coming Messiah, here's what it says in chapter 11. Dramatic pause. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's Jesus. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Next verse. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So again, now we know who this is. This is Jesus. So the spirit of the Lord is going to rest on Jesus. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Next slide. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he's not going to listen to testimony? No. No, it means he's not going to be influenced 
by the crowds, by the people, by people saying, do this, do that. He's going to judge fairly and with equity. Next verse. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Now, in some eras, in some cultures, the poor get the short end of the stick. Certainly that was true in Israel. It probably has been true in America at times when the wealthy were treated with a distinct advantage before the courts and the poor man was neglected and the afflicted were, were, were ignored. It's hard to make the case that that is where we're at today. What has happened today? What is going on in our culture? We are taking certain identities, certain groups of people, and we are saying they are afflicted. They are mistreated. Could be certain races. Could be one out of the two sexes. Could be financial situation. We create all of these identities and these classes and we call them oppressed and we call them afflicted and then we demand justice for them. And we don't mean equity. We mean equality. We mean we're not going to treat those oppressed and afflicted groups fairly but we're going to take the oppressive group and treat them unfairly to make up for the perceived oppression of these other groups. And we as Christians need to understand God abhors that. He hates that. It is one thing to say we're going to treat people with mercy. You deserve this, but we're going to be merciful with you. That's great. God loves that. But in the name of justice, to treat the poor and afflicted unfairly is wickedness. Church, we have to think. And we have to think biblically about what's being said and done around us and not react and respond and think that whoever we're listening to and whatever we're reading, that they are being just and fair. On all sides of these things, there's a whole lot of agendas and biases. All sides. Don't think the side you particularly like is without prejudice. What we care about as Christians is what does God say? And God says, I want you to treat people with justice and equity. Because he loves that. He delights in that. So on Friday, I was perusing the, uh, the news headlines, and I saw that a new prosecutor in St. Louis had examined, again, all of the evidence from the Michael Brown case. Remember that one? Uh, Ferguson, Missouri, right down the street from where my wife grew up. When we, when we met each other 30 years ago, she lived in Florissant, which is very close to Ferguson. And you remember all the outcry and all the response of Ferguson and Michael Brown and that whole thing. And this prosecutor, who 
it matters in this discussion, is a black man examined all the evidence and decided that the police officer in that situation should not be charged. Now, you remember the rioting and stuff that we're seeing now, there were some similar things going on several years ago in response to the Michael Brown situation. And then we had more recently the George Floyd situation. How are we to think about something like this as people who love justice? First of all, we need to be humble and realize we do not know. You weren't there. I wasn't there. Almost everybody who's talking about it, they weren't there. And yet people are talking very confidently about what the officer did and didn't do and meant and why he was doing it, what George Floyd was doing and not doing what he was thinking, and everybody else. We have very confident assertions being thrown around about all of this. And none of us were there. But here's where we have to be as Christians. We have to look at that situation and say, what we want is justice. God's justice. And here are the kinds of questions we need to be asking. Was the police officer, I believe his name is Chauvin, is that how you say it? Was the police officer acting unjustly according to the law when he apprehended George Floyd? That's one of the questions we have to ask. If it is true, and I've heard reports this is true, if it is true that that technique of kneeling on someone's neck is standard protocol in arresting someone who's resisting, then as as awful as that video looks, if he's following what he was told to do, then he was not acting unjustly. There may be injustice in that. And where does that fault lie? With those who train him, with those who make the policies, with those who say, this is how you can treat somebody. There is a process for saying, we don't want that kind of thing being done anymore. Let's change the process. Let's change the protocol, change the policies. The process for getting that done is through the legal system, not through burning down cities. God hates that as much as he hates any other injustice. What if this officer, as I've seen reports indicate, what if he has multiple cases of excessive force charges on his record? Where was the injustice? His boss, somebody should have disciplined him a long time ago. If he has a history of breaking the rules as an officer, then there was injustice done. It wasn't just him. It was whoever trained him, whoever allowed this to go on. What I'm saying is we don't know the answer to all these questions. We have a legal process that is designed to determine whether or not the police officer committed a crime and broke the rules in how he apprehended George Floyd. And we need to let that process play out. And we as Christians need to pray for and hope for that true justice will be done. And that if the officer did something illegal, then he suffers the due consequences of taking a man's life through his illegal actions. 
and if he was doing the right thing, that he is not charged guilty. Every person who is involved in that decision is going to stand before the capital J judge someday and give an account. And to condemn a, an innocent man is as abhorrent to God as to let a guilty man go free. And we get so caught up and, and wound up, we, meaning we as a culture, get so wrapped up in the emotional response and the, and the, the stuff that's being spoken out there, and we have to step back and say, wait, 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 what matters is justice here. Not justice as the world defines it, justice as God defines it. God is not going to look at Facebook and decide whether or not George Floyd was treated unjustly. He's not going to watch Fox News and decide whether or not Chauvin is innocent or guilty. And neither should we. Because most people who are talking out there have an agenda, and you can't know if their agenda is just. We have to love the legal system in the sense that, not, not that it's flawless, but the sense that we have a justice system that is designed to decide how these cases are treated. And if we get caught up in the reactions, the responses, the emotions of the mobs and the crowds on any side of this, we are leaving godliness and walking toward wickedness. God delights in justice. He delights in righteousness in fairness, in equity, and we must too. And it's a big deal because what we're seeing in our culture today is flagrant injustice. And we as the church have to stand up and say, that's wrong, and I will not be a part of it. So I urge you, Christian, I urge you, Frack, be very, very careful where you let your mind go. And it starts often with your ears, with your eyes, what input, what you receive, what data, what media you're taking in. Be very careful not to be swept away with the, the crowds. Focus on what God says is just.